Welcome to the Allocate Podcast, where we help investors get the latest on the private markets by interviewing experts within the alternative space. This week, we're thrilled to be joined by Rob Picard, head of alternatives at Hightower Advisors, which currently manages over $110 billion in assets across 128 independent advisor groups. In today's show, we spoke about the growing trend of high net worth investors investing in the private markets, the things that have led to this wave over the last decade, and Rob's view on how he expects the markets to evolve in the future years across all categories, including private equity and venture capital. With over 30 years of experience in the space, Rob provided some great insights that we think you'll really enjoy listening to. So without further ado, let's get right into the show. Samir Kaji is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Allocate and Venture Unlocked are independent of each other. Any statements or references made by Allocate or its guests regarding third parties, investments or securities are solely their views and opinions and are not intended as investment advice or an endorsement of such parties or securities by Allocate or its guests. Allocate or its clients may maintain relationships with or investment positions in guests, third parties, or securities mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Hey, Rob, it's so great to see you, and thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So, Rob, you and I are f- former teammates and colleagues at First Republic, and now J.P. Morgan, of course. And while we won't get into that, we both now also work in the world of alternatives, and you joined Hightower just under two years ago. Before we get into what you do now and how you think about alternatives within the private wealth sector, it would be great to go back in time and go through your career and really the path that led you to where you are right now. Listen, it started many years ago. I've been doing this now for 32 years. My goal uh, was always to enter into finance, but it was really very much defined by an experience that I lived through in the 1970s uh, as a young, probably as an eight-year-old, when my father, who was in finance, was made redundant during the prior recession back in the 1970s and ultimately had several years where he was searching, uh, trying to get a job and ultimately was hired to move to Switzerland as a family where he opened up the offices for a financial company, which eventually became Donaldson, Lufkin, Jenrette. DLJ. And it's funny because that's another company that has uh, recently disappeared. And it's it's one of the themes that we'll see in finance uh, as we talk today about innovation and or the ongoing changes in finance. But going back to my dad, it became clear to me that if I was to be in finance, I didn't want to be ever made redundant. And I always wanted to add value and be relevant. And really, it was my goal to focus on some of the more sophisticated areas of finance. Example of that, I started my career trading Swiss franc dollar yen convertible bonds uh, for Nomura uh, in Geneva, Switzerland. At that time, the market was at 38,000. That market is still way below that level 30 years later. So my reality has been managing and recognizing that it's not always a bull market and it can be challenging at times, which kind of migrated or defined my next part of my career, which was going into global equity derivatives helping clients solve problems in all market environments with good risk-adjusted returns, then migrated to structured products and ultimately into hedge funds and private markets. During that time, I've built now over the last 32 years, five separate distinct multi-billion dollar platforms, including at the Carlyle Group, uh, which ultimately we spun out and became the Rock Creek Group, which is today a $14 billion business. Uh, And then most recently was at First Public Private Wealth Management, where I helped consolidate two 
uh, separate alternate investment businesses where I intersected with you during a, a brief time there. There too built uh, a wealth management platform and of course now recently joined Hightower Advisors, which is a, a wealth management firm that currently is comprised of 132 separate wealth management businesses. Uh, and we currently manage in excess of $120 billion in wealth management assets. For those that are not as initiated, can you define what alternatives mean to you? And then maybe go back 10, 12 years where it seemed that alternative investments, which historically were mainly invested by institutions, the endowments, pensions, foundations, started going mainstream. And within the private wealth sector, what really drove that? Being at cocktail parties back in the 1990s, people would say, hey, what do you do? And I'd say, oh, I, I run global equity derivatives. And immediately people would turn away and just migrate somewhere else. And, and the way I look at defining alternative investments is anything that's not a public equity or public fixed income, I would almost argue is an alternative of some sort. And then the next step to, to what I think most people believe as or recognize as an alternative is something that's a private investment, typically non-regulated. And historically, would managers would operate in a format where it was not only a private non-regulated investment pool of assets, but very often they would benefit of with a management fee and very often tag on some sort of incentive fee or carry, which in theory would align the interests of the manager with those of their clients, but also made a number of individuals who today now billionaires since the 90s. Uh, and now, originally uh, in the 90s, what became mainstream were hedge funds. That was very popular. And it's funny, people forget the first hedge fund was Alfred Winslow Jones, A.W. Jones, uh, back in the 1940s and 1950s, where he had a long short strategy. If we put on our history hat, in 1969, I think it was Fortune magazine, issued a, uh, uh, an article stating that hedge funds was at the end of hedge funds, meaning that there were just too many out there, which is pretty fascinating. And the same question was brought up by Barton Biggs in 2001, 2002. And of course, hedge funds uh, migrated from being what I refer to as first global macro in the 1980s and early 1990s. Then came 1990s were all about arbitrage meaning not really taking risk, but by going long and short, you'd basically be able to secure a risk-adjusted return that was in excess of that of the market. And then over time, we've now migrated much more into actual private equity, venture capital, private credit uh, as a substitute for public fixed income, and of course, private real estate, which have now become, uh, to a certain degree, mainstream. Maybe honing in on the last 15 years and alternatives have grown, I think, Right after the GFC, alternatives were about $4 trillion. Now they're, depending on what the definition is in the source, about $13 trillion, expected to grow to $26 trillion over the next 10 years. And I look back, and there were probably a few things that really drove the growth of it, both in the institutional and private wealth sector in terms of investors, low interest rates, the need for diversification, the above-average market returns that privates have provided. But what else have you seen in terms of overall trend lines that have really driven the amount of activity in the uh, private markets? It's a number of factors that defined this migration and or adoption. So traditionally, large institutions, sovereign wealth funds, endowments, and most billionaires were embracing private market investments. They had the wherewithal. These markets, you know, the, the SEC, which is charged with 
not only empowering people to take advantage of the equity markets and fixed income markets, the SEC's job is to sort of encourage the market, but also to police and regulate. And what, what was clear was that throughout this period of time, there was a lot of efficiency in, in public equity and public fixed income. That same efficiency was lacking uh, in private markets. And what has been seen by certain university endowments, David Svensson and other great money managers, they proved unequivocally that by over-allocating or increasing their allocation to alternative investments over a longer period of time, they were able to consistently outperform what we would consider to be efficient public equity and public fixed income markets. And you know the statistics we have now is that over the last 15 years or so, the average billionaire and or in university endowment have consistently outperformed both public fixed income and public equity markets in a way with just better risk-adjusted returns, which really forces all of us now to figure out how best for everyone to participate to a certain degree. And that's really where both the wealth managers at Hightower Advisors, uh, as portfolio managers, as a fiduciary, are looking to enhance or add value to clients' portfolios. When you look at alternatives, and you mentioned a little bit about the implementation of alternatives in somebody's portfolio in increasing potential performance while reducing overall portfolio volatility. However, when we look at the, you know, you mentioned David Swenson at Yale, and of course, very big in alternatives. And most of these large organizations, 20, 30, 40, 50% in alts relative to the average individual, which is still south of 5%. Why has, have individuals not adopted private alternatives at the pace, given these very clear reasons to do so? It's been a challenge. Again, this is these private markets, private funds that were set up by some of these leading money managers to invest in private credit, private equity, and real estate. To invest in a fund using subscription documents, it was highly inefficient. It was not also available to the average accredited investor or the average retail investor. These products were really reserved exclusively for what the SEC would consider to be sophisticated, very knowledgeable investors, which was a real handicap for what I'd refer to and will refer to it over the coming minutes of the democratization uh, of alternatives. So there was really multiple issues. One, we recognized that there was an opportunity to make money. It wasn't really well known for the average retail investor, but it was extremely challenging to access funds, to know who are the good managers to invest in. It was difficult to access the documents because you needed to be a qualified purchaser, which is a high threshold, meaning you have to be, to a certain degree, a super high net worth investor. Uh, And then the products themselves as private investments just were not available to the average investor. And what's now been transformative over the past several years is firms such as uh, KKR, Blackstone, Apollo, and some of the larger firms have really innovated with products that are now available uh, or more available now to a lower threshold of investor, uh, an accredited investor, and to a certain degree levels the playing field where the average billionaire would have, let's say, 50% allocated to alternatives. But that was not available to, to retail or to high net worth, generally speaking. And what's happened now with the innovation that's come from the Blackstones, the Apollos, and the KKRs of this world, they've now created products that are made available that allows everyone. And listen, 
And I know, Samir, you're close to being a billionaire. You probably can already access these alloc- uh, managers. And by the way, we will. You've been an innovator. I'm going to get to that in a minute about platforms and, and easy the ease to access. Most importantly, I think the average investor would love to and should be have access to the same opportunities that the average billionaire has access to. That's one piece, which is just products that were innovated. The second innovation came from what I was alluding to, which was the complexity to filling out subscription documents and actually accessing these these platforms or these funds. And today, it's sort of where fintech or financial technology meets private markets. A number of platforms have been created, such as iCapital, Case, PPB, Conway, Glass, uh, just to note a few, plus subscribe, have basically created solutions using technology where from your desktop, you can fill out all the relevant information and access it. And, and there's an example, Samir, you're part of this trend also, where one of the most innovative platforms that I've seen recently in my career has been venture capital, as an example, is one strategy that has been, to a certain degree, less available on these existing platforms, whether it be iCapital, Onway, uh, Case, and others, where you have been the founder of a platform called Allocate, which provides a very similar opportunity for investors to access some of the most hard-to-get-access venture capital firms in the world due to your relationships and using a technology that's very similar to the others. Uh, And that's really the... we're, we're, We're literally seeing the democratization of availability and access to opportunities that we didn't have before. You mentioned a number of things that I think certainly are worth a little bit more discussion and unpacking of in some of those things that have driven more private alternatives within the private wealth sector have been the lowering of the friction of actually signing up and managing. There was a time where, you know, maybe just five to 10 years ago, subscription documents were all PDF and you had to fill these out only to find out maybe you had an error and there's a back and, bunch of back and forth. So really difficult and a, and a headache, which actually made a lot of people not want to do it. And then of course, the miniaturization of getting access into really high quality firms, not having to write a 10 or $20 million check, but rather investing maybe 250 and building an institutional class portfolio. The thing that I'd love to get your take on is that with any private investment, whether it's private equity, credit, venture, there's varying levels of illiquidity that are just inherent. And I know that there are a lot of people looking at embracing not only the way of offering people early liquidity, but new structures and things like that. And so we'd love to hear how you think about illiquidity and what you see coming uh, within the private alts world going forward. So before I get to liquidity, first, I want to add on to what you just were talking about, which is the miniaturization. I like that term, miniaturization. Uh, so first of all, it's not only 250000 it's actually dropping down to 100000 and in some cases down to 10000 for some, some private market opportunities. When it comes down to the liquidity side, it's crazy what's been happening thanks to the media and to TV over the last 20 or 30 years, where when you turn on CNBC, you're getting a countdown to the opening bell almost to the hundredth of a second. It's the excitement. Uh, and you know they're trying to rope people in and get people excited. And you have day trading and technologies allowed people through and their app on their phone to, to move money. And we just saw it with, with First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank. People can move money extremely quickly. That said, there's a downside to that to that movement and to that transparency and that 
element of trading. I think it's extremely important in a global economy. And, and I do believe we in the United States is one of the most transformative economies uh, in the world uh, going back now many, many years. And right now, probably artificial intelligence is the next transformative moment with technology. But one of the problems with the U.S. economy is we've also gotten to this point of rapid trading. And uh, I really think it's important in a capitalist society that there also be a certain element of long-term investing and, and forcing people to be more thoughtful and take a long-term view to building both our companies that make up the, the ecosystem or the core of this, of this world. And, and frankly, I think most people who invest in, in alternatives, or at least our clients at Hightower, our clients are often themselves founders founders of companies recently, or maybe even as far as, you know, multi-generational of 50 to hundred years ago. And they recognize and acknowledge that the rapidity or trading element of markets can be detrimental and hurt our economy. And one of the benefits of private markets is the fact that it's less liquid. That, that lack of liquidity should be rewarded to a certain degree with higher returns, but should also allow at the base of our ecosystem of our economy for both corporate America, for U.S. companies, either in the fixed income markets and or debt markets and or in the equity markets, to basically manage the company with a longer term view, understanding the needs that the money will be patient and stable. Uh, and that's why in, in, in the private market side, just to give you an idea, a statistic, in the United States, of companies that generate more than $100 million of revenue, 87%, 87% of the companies that generate more than $100 million in revenue are private. They're not available in the public markets. Those are the founders. The founders are still active. And I think it's a good thing to force people to have a portion of your portfolio in what I'd refer to as illiquid investments. Going back 20 years ago, or even during the global financial crisis, people were really upset about the lack of liquidity in private markets. And people were complaining about suspension of redemptions and locking up money. I think a lot of that had to do with just clients who were misinformed or malinformed about how important it is to have stable money. If everyone's running for the door you know, and you own real estate, guess what? You're going to sell that piece of real estate at a significant discount. And that's going to hurt all the investors. And I think what you want to really take approach is a patient, thoughtful measured approach to investing in private markets and then have that reward. And I think that's what we're seeing right now, where I, I think people are recognizing the fact that you don't want people to have the ability to rush for the exits. And listen, we can go into the Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic transition where to a certain degree, there was a run on the bank. We, I don't know when the last time we had a run on the bank in this country, but if you go to Mary Poppins, if you go to It's a Wonderful Life, which were our, our, our classic movies, both of those movies had scenes with run on the bank. And through my professional career, I don't think we've recently witnessed around the bank. And I think that same concept of what just transpired over the last two or three months needs to be addressed to a certain degree by the regulators. But at the same time, I think it's now being addressed by the private markets where that, that liquidity is not as available as it used to be. There's a lot of great thoughts embedded in there. And I do agree with the long-term orientation that you need to have in investing. And it's often said that illiquidity can serve as a feature versus a bug as it prevents people from buying on the way up and high point investing only to sell when things uh, are at the bottom. You know, of course, we've talked about 
the number of companies now that are in the private markets, the size of those companies with over 80% of companies that are generating $100 million or higher in revenue being in the private markets. Yet in the wealth advisory community, what we see is a fairly wide spectrum of behaviors from wealth advisors. Some not only fully embrace alternatives, but are looking at 20 to 30% of their client portfolios and alternatives, and others still inclined toward your traditional, maybe not 60-40, but close to it, and really sticking with stocks and bonds. What do you think drives that? And, and maybe provide your perspective and what you're seeing. The term spectrum, I think, is actually a great term to use. It's a very wide spectrum in wealth management right now across wealth management teams and their choice to allocate or employ private market investments uh, in their portfolios. Uh, as an example, at Hightower, we, we currently own, as I said, north of 130 firms, and they have a lot of autonomy to basically where they want to position themselves on that spectrum of opportunity. And, and I look at it as, well, let's just look at the math. Let's look at the statistics. And, and just as you alluded to, on a risk-adjusted return basis, an allocation to private markets or a higher allocation to private markets, typically 20% or 30% over a 15-year period, generates a better risk-adjusted return than a traditional 60-40 model. And, and what I'm seeing right now, first of all, very few people know where 60-40 originated from. I think it's a good basis or, or, or base to, to operate from. But now uh, that spectrum has widened. There are firms that are arguing that it should be 40-30-30, meaning 40% in equities, 30% in fixed income, and 30% in private markets. Others are saying 50-30-20. Uh, I look at it as, and, and at Hightower, we, we're here to provide solutions uh, to our teams. We look at it as sort of growth-balanced conservative. Uh, and growth might be 20%, balanced might be 10%, and conservative might be 5%. Uh, and then sort of replicating within your asset allocation for private markets, sort of mimicking what you already have in, in public equity and, and public fixed income. What we are seeing, though, is that that piece of the portfolio that's allocated to private markets, I look at it as kind of your long-term allocation. It's one where um, you're going to hold it for a longer period. It's going to be patient capital. Uh, and most importantly, you should be rewar rewarded for that lack of liquidity and rewarded for that patience with a much higher return than you're going to get the liquid part of your portfolio. What do you think that premium should be? Like, how should investors be thinking about it? Of course, the long-term S&P average, roughly 10%, of, but very few years end up in that 8 to 10%. It's still quite volatile. You have a lot of great years and then you have a lot of down years. But if you did hold the S&P for a long period of time, typically you net out at about 10%. So when you look at all of these different categories, private credit, private equity, venture capital, of course, a lot of it depends on the current market environment and looking at things like public market equivalents. But as an investor that's fairly un uninitiated, what types of returns or what type of premium over the public market should I expect to be reasonable to make up for the illiquidity and risk that I'm taking. Just have one caveat, which is we're basing everything off of historical returns. And again, we know that past returns don't necessarily dictate how things are going to play out in the future. And we also should highlight the fact that Howard Marks and many others are talking about this sea change where you and I have benefited and most of our peers have benefited from multiple multi-generational bull market. 
and to a certain degree, very low interest rates. And going forward, there's been this sea change where the, the environment is changing, offering what we believe to be and will offer great opportunities in private markets. Those opportunities, though, you need to be rewarded. And, and, and to get to your question, I look at it as if you're generating historically in fixed income a certain return in public fixed income, to be willing to take the risk or to lock up your money for a period of time, whether it be in private real estate, direct lending, corporate. Recently, we just did a deal in, in asset-based lending, which has to do with aircraft leasing, healthcare royalties, uh, mortgage-backed securities, a, a pool of different credit investments. You need to be rewarded with at least four to 600 basis points of additional P&L. Uh, and what I'm getting to is, you know, in the private credit spectrum, I'd really like to get to double digits of some sort, lower double digits on the private credit side. And on the private equity or venture capital side, for that illiquidity risk, the risk of you know losing everything you have in equity, you really need to be rewarded with 20% plus returns, if not 30 or 40% IRRs on your portfolio. You, you really need to be rewarded for that piece. And basically, find a professional or a seasoned professional uh, as a wealth manager to basically put together a portfolio of private investments that give you those that diversification, but also that that return that we're targeting. You mentioned the sea uh, change article or memo by Howard Marks, which I think was a really good one, which effectively spoke about that we were on this moving walkway. And the moving walkway was really driven by low interest rates, of course, since 2009, four rounds of quantitative easing, and a lot of liquidity flowing into the system, which made it such that you could win in doing anything. The public markets, of course, if you saw the NASDAQ 100 from 2009 to 2021-ish, increased north of 10x. So you saw everybody really benefiting from you know this easy money policy. Of course, in late 2021, becomes clear that the Fed was wrong. Inflation is not transitory. And we saw rates bump up, which has actually created this crisis with some of these banks out there. But how does this affect now alternatives going forward? The joy of what I do here at Hightower, just as Bob Oros, our CEO, has created strategic relationships with our wealth management, and they have a lot of autonomy, we use the same philosophy as it relates to our third-party fund managers. We look to have strategic relationships. And I have the benefit sitting in my seat of talking to, in theory, uh, and often in practice, some of the best and brightest, smartest money managers uh, in the world. And, and that communication that I receive, the information I receive, I share that with our wealth management teams. And then most importantly, those wealth management teams do hopefully share that same information with their clients who we serve uh, and service on a day-to-day -day basis. What we're hearing, what we're seeing is that First of all, this is different than the global financial crisis in 2008. We don't believe we're going to see meaningful dislocations or end-of-world type scenarios. What we're really hearing is we should get paid to wait, meaning making investments specifically in the private credit space where you can get a high coupon or high current yield in private investments and then wait for opportunities or uh, what I refer to as micro dislocations, dislocations such as we just saw with Silicon Valley Bank, or we're going to see with potentially community banks being forced to, to liquidate certain commercial real estate assets or potential credit investments and take advantage of the opportunity in private credit to be patient and to wait for those opportunities as they come about. 
And that, I think, is going to be a period, I think, most of this year, we don't see interest rates dropping anytime soon. Uh, If anything, we see them staying static over the next 18 months or so as we wait for inflation to temper. Uh, And during that time, get paid to wait. So just make solid investments that generate current yield higher than what you can get in cash or in public fixed income. And then as opportunities arise, have your money with fund managers that have the opportunity or dry powder to take advantage of those deals and can quickly allocate uh, and secure that capital at a a significant discount. When you do work with the uh, different advisors that that are on the platform, I think a lot of them have adopted some level of alternatives. You mentioned some private private credit being, you know, one that has income characteristics, shorter term illiquidity, but with a coupon rate that still exceeds what you can get in traditional sort of risk-free rates or government bonds. When you look at the menu of alternatives, you you touched on something that's near and dear to my heart, which is the world of venture capital or more I I would say specifically funds that touch technology or life sciences or the innovation sector. How do you think the future looks in terms of advisors implementing some level of things like venture capital as part of their portfolios going forward, or at least their client portfolios? And what are some of the things that really need to happen to see this at scale? There's a lot to unpack and and there's a lot to explain on that, that one question. So first of all, Across our wealth management teams, there's a wide spectrum. We have some teams that already embrace uh, venture capital, and I'll explain why, and then others who are very hesitant. Just from the term venture, I think they're just concerned. Uh, they've watched the documentary about Elizabeth Holmes on about Theranos. They don't necessarily consider themselves, maybe they're slightly afraid of the understanding of technology and the evolution. You know, I just want to put it out there right now. My personal view is that one of the strengths of the the US economy has been its ability to transform be transformative and to innovate. I remember creating a worldwide web index uh, over the counter option back in 1995 with you know companies like Unit, CompuServe, uh, and all these companies that the, inter- the dawn of the internet all of those companies have been taken out. All of those companies have been bought out and the internet, you know, I remember Netscape. I remember, you know, it, it like all these companies have just disappeared, but now the internet runs everything. Today, this podcast, whether it be Zoom, everything has has been, uh, that innovation is about us. We had on Thursday night, last Thursday, we had Ashton Kutcher speaking about his company, Sound Ventures, and talking about artificial intelligence and how that's going to impact and benefit. Again, I think he's an eternal optimist. I could take the other side of that saying, oh my God, the artificial intelligence world might be the end of humanity as we know it. But I, I generally believe that, uh, I share his view that we are good Good will win uh, over evil and and huge opportunities. So just putting that framework around the opportunity of venture, we have certain teams uh, within Hightower that understand that those are the venture capital offers the greatest opportunity for innovation, not only in uh, artificial intelligence technology, but also in life sciences. You know, gene editing technology. I personally think of ourselves as biological robots because we're programmed to die. Our cells are programmed to age. And, you know, I'd argue that gene editing uh, technology, the ability to edit out certain diseases in the future is is just extraordinary uh, and extremely hopeful for humanity. Uh, and all of that, to a certain degree, a, a, a sprinkling of that should be in everyone's portfolio, not only because it has a huge opportunity 
to generate meaningful amount of money in the future. But just because I want people need to know what's coming. People need to learn about it. It's not just by watching the news, but it's by looking at their portfolio and understanding, being able to dream. I, I really look at the private markets as that that opportunity to to learn and and participate in businesses. Uh, and you know, my joke is always about you know in the old day old days it makes me old. I got a lot of gray hair. And by the way, venture capital is very much a young man's more of your world, Samir. Uh, I'm aging out. Uh, I don't necessarily have the source origination of, of, of contacts that you do, and you live in the right location. I'm here on the East Coast. Going back to the opportunity in that space, it's it's just extraordinary how we're going to see this, this massive growth opportunity for, for investors in the right strategies and the right technologies uh, within their portfolio. Well, I appreciate the nod to saying that I'm uh, relatively young, although I'll age myself I started my career in the uh, late 90s, lending to companies during the dot-com bubble. But what I've seen over the last 24, 25 years in the, in the venture market is that it does follow what's happening within technology itself. And we've seen technology super cycles emerge, the internet. Before that, it was the PC. Post-internet, it was mobile and cloud. And it does appear AI itself has a very large opportunity to be as big as some of those other cycles in the, and tech super cycles in the past. But when, when you look at technology, you've mentioned this a lot in, in terms of platforms that now make it easy for investors, advisors to put their investors and clients into really interesting private opportunities. Where do you see the future of technology within the alternative space? I feel like the last 10 years or maybe V1.0 but it's hard not to think about the role of things like artificial intelligence and in making an advisor more efficient, smarter. What are you tracking right now? I get scared with artificial intelligence only because I, I, I'm only as intelligent as I can be. And I realize that artificial intelligence will most likely has already surpassed me uh, massively and rapidly. It comes back to transparency. When I turn on my, my, my phone, when I pull up my mobile phone and look at my current equity accounts, I want that same ability for my private market accounts. I want to be able to drill down to the manager that I own, uh, learn about their bio, what investments they have currently, what the news is, and just be able to access that all in real time. And ideally, if I can have a recording or have it play back to me or, you know, and then just research and then crowdsource some of the information across other private investments, I think that's really the future. I always joke about old technology back in but I used to work with brokers in the 1990s. When they would get an order in, in Zurich, Switzerland, they would have to cross the street and go to the post office and enter that order into a telex machine, which would then receive it in New York on Wall Street, and they would enter the order. Fast forward, then we had decimalization of stocks. And, and today, I think the next, next big change is going to be that integration of private markets with public markets. I really don't see the two as being separate. I really see the two as being complementary to each other and that both should be investable with the same ease, the same transparency, and the same speed. Albeit, there should be some longer lockups for some of the private market investments. And maybe even to a certain degree, even for, I think it, we should at some point look at the debate as to whether maybe public investments should be potentially uh, a longer lockup. I mean, I, I, there's a term we used to use in derivatives called a death spiral. People are hedging out their portfolio, so they're forced to sell short to keep covering 
their loss and you can you can create a death spiral. It's sort of what we saw with the Silicon Valley Bank stock price and we just saw it recently with First Republic stock price where you know people are forced just sell because they lose confidence. And to a certain I think it would be healthy to put in place some sort of restrictions or some sort of concept for certain types of investment where it can hurt our economy when people are able to literally run a stock down to zero because that is really the value of the company that you're basically saying it's worth zero. I mean, how can that be when you've got intellectual property, you've got wealth management assets, you have loans, you have commercial loans? I mean, in the case of First Republic, they had a lot of different products. They were a viable institution, but for whatever reason, the market lost trust uh, and it was literally sold down to zero. I think last price on Friday was $4 or whatever number it was. It was just trading at almost 200 a year ago. Going back 20 years, I mean, there were so many investment banks, these boutique investment banks that ultimately would take companies public. Fairly early, there was companies that we know, the Apples, the Googles of the world, that went public within five years of incorporation. Now, not only the, the difficulty of going public, the cost involved, of course, we've seen Sarbanes-Oxley now turn, I think, 21 years old, but it's also the fact that public emotion can really shift how these companies are valued in a material way. If you agree with me, at least leads me to believe that the growth of the private markets will just continue and that companies simply will not want to go public until they truly are mature enough to handle. And banks like FRB and, and Silicon Valley Bank, these were banks that were amongst the top 20 in, in the US and disappeared almost overnight. So it is going to be interesting to see what things like this do in terms of public offerings. I do believe that that spectrum between public and private is going to narrow and we're going to get integration at some point. That said, the regulators do have a very important role, and maybe they've been slightly deficient uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. They haven't necessarily followed the, the change of technology and the change of speed at which people can buy and sell uh, and trade and get information. But that said, the benefit of public markets is this, this need for transparency and absolute transparency. And I think one of the, the great developments of the global financial crisis was this effort to for the Fed to have more transparency in ownership of, of which corporations, which financial companies own what securities uh, and what sort of leverage to better manage and police and oversee the markets. And I think that's something that the public deserves to have. Where it comes to public private markets, private markets don't have that same oversight historically. That oversight are individuals like yourself, myself, whether it be bankers, whether it be investors. I always talk about, you know, listen, look at Madoff, look at Theranos, look at FTX most recently. I think it's extremely important when dealing with private markets until there's more transparency to have a, a group of, and I know this is Hightower's view, to have a group of seasoned professionals to diligence and perform all the work for those wealth management teams and advisor businesses so they can make informed decisions. But that said, you know, I exist, I'm seasoned, I add value to that to that proposition. I do believe though with technology and innovation over the coming years, not that I'm necessarily going to be made redundant uh, because I'll always be looking for for to add value, but I do hope that there'll be less need for individuals such as myself, where you know there'll be more transparency, knowing that there won't be a Theranos, there won't be a Madoff, because there'll be enough information out there in the public domain that would allow people to make informed decisions. And that's really that's kind of the right now that 
that disconnect where we're not quite ready for public uh, private markets to be av- readily available because there's still, unfortunately, hiccups uh, that have been hurting that side of the market. So I want to zoom out for my last question. And we're sitting here May of 2023, and we've we've talked about the growth of the private markets. We've talked about the growth of the overlap of the private market and private market investing and the private wealth sector. What will we be talking about 10 years from now? If we're having the same conversation, what are your big picture predictions of the state of alternatives and private wealth over the next 10 years? The way I see the future and based on my history of of finance in finance is we're going to see absolute transparency. And we're going to have an incredible amount of information available at any given time. When you had an earnings call 10 or 20 years ago, you'd have 100 analysts dialing to that call, listening, taking notes, maybe recording on a tape deck that call to replay later. Fast forward to 10, 15 years ago, people recording in real time, transcribing and analyzing that call against the 10 prior earnings calls and against competitors' earnings calls to pick up idiosyncratic or inconsistencies in that call. And going forward, I think you're going to have all that information available. Artificial intelligence is going to be sourcing that information, consolidating it, and crystallizing it in in, in a digestible format that makes it available to not only professionals like yourself and myself, but for mom and dad, mom and pop, people sitting on their kitchen table and being able to access it in a readily available fashion. I couldn't agree more. And and I'm actually looking forward to this state of transparency. I think right now, both in public markets and private markets, there's so much more opportunity. And that's where we go back to things like AI, which is essentially harnessing data that sits there in the cloud and converting that into intelligence that's useful for in the financial markets for investors like ourselves. So, Rob, this has been an incredibly insightful and fun conversation. Thank you for sharing your insights and um, excited about what you're doing at Hightower. Well, thank you very much, Samir. It's absolutely a pleasure joining you. Uh, Thank you and look forward to sharing some time again very shortly in the near future. Thanks so much for listening to episode one of the Allocate podcast. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Rob. Please subscribe to the Allocate podcast on iTunes or Spotify to get the latest episodes straight to your inbox. And don't forget to leave a rating as it really helps us out.